Our text for today is found in Isaiah 30, so please open your Bibles with me. Isaiah 30, we're going to study four texts there. Verse 15, 18, 19, and 21. Isaiah chapter 30. Let's start with verse 15. For thus says the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance, or returning, says some versions, and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Verse 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those that wait for him. Verse 19, for the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Verse 21. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. So let's make this a little bit more personal. One of the things I love to do with the Bible is change the pronouns. So you guys are going to help me out. All right? So let's start here at at verse 15. For thus says the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. So let's start with this. So you repeat after me. In repentance and rest is my salvation. Let's all say it. In repentance and rest is my salvation. In quietness and trust is my strength. In quietness and trust is my strength. The Lord longs to be gracious to who? To me. Let's say it together. The Lord longs to be gracious to me. Therefore, he will rise up to show me compassion. Therefore, he will rise up. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed am I for waiting for him. Let's repeat it. Blessed am I for waiting for him. For I will dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. I shall weep no more. Let's say it together. For I will dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. I shall weep no more. He will be gracious to me at the sound of my cry. When he hears it, he will answer me. When he hears it, what? He will answer me. Whether I turn to the right or to the left, my ears will hear a voice behind me saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Whether I turn to the right or to the left, my ears will hear a voice behind me saying, this is the way, walk in it. So one of the most interesting things that we do when we study the Bible is look at the context. When was this written? What was the message of Isaiah to God's people back then? So we can understand how to apply it today. So let's see what the uh, context of the book of Isaiah is, and specifically this chapter, chapter 30. So Isaiah was the son of Amos, not the prophet, but his father with a Z at the end, not an S, a Z at the end. And he is often thought of as the greatest of the writing prophets. His name means the Lord saves. He was a contemporary of the other prophet, Amos. Hosea, and Micah. Beginning his ministry in 740 before Christ, exactly the year that King Uzziah died. So according to Jewish tradition, how did he die? Someone remember how 
Jewish tradition teaches, he was sawed in half. And there's a text in Hebrews 11.37 that might be a reference to that. Because when it talks about the people that gave their lives for God, it says some of them were sawed in half. So Jewish tradition has it that he was sawed in half. Uh, that was during the reign of Manasseh. Now, Isaiah was married. The Bible says that he had at least two sons. Probably spent most of his life in Jerusalem, enjoying his greatest influence under King Hezekiah. Isaiah is also credited with writing the history of the reign of King Hosea. Now, let's look a little bit into the background of the book of Isaiah. When did Isaiah write? Do you guys remember? He wrote during a very stormy period, marking the expansion of the Assyrians. Remember the Assyrians? That huge empire, and of course, the decline of Israel. Under King Tiglath-Pileser III, the Assyrians swept westward into Aram, which today is Syria, right? And also invaded all of Canaan. So about the year 733 before Christ, the kings of Aram and Israel tried to pressure the king of Judah, which was at that time Ahaz, to make some type of a coalition and fight against Assyria. Well, Ahaz did something really crazy. What do you think he did? The king of Judah. Remember that we're talking about God's kingdom that was divided. We had the kingdom of the north, kingdom of the south. So Judah was also God's people and, and also Israel. So he decides to join the enemy. Yes. He, he, he chooses instead to ask Tigler Pileser for help, a decision that was condemned by Israel, of course. And Assyria did assist Judah and conquered the northern kingdom. All of those ten tribes of God's people, they were totally destroyed. Year 722 before Christ. Now this made Judah even more vulnerable. And in the year 701, King Sennacherib of Assyria threatened Jerusalem itself. But there was a godly king, remember? Hezekiah. So he prayed earnestly. And Isaiah predicted that God would force the Assyrians to withdraw and leave the city. Nevertheless, the message of Isaiah is a warning to Judah that because of her sins, she was going to be taken captive by the hands of the Babylons. The visit of the Babylonians king, when they went with that huge envoy during Hezekiah's time, will actually probably set the stage for that prediction. Although the fall of Jerusalem would not take place until 586 B.C., Isaiah assumes the destruction of Judah and proceeds to predict also the restoration of the people from captivity. God would redeem his people. He would redeem them from Babylon just like he had redeemed them many years back from Egypt. Okay, you guys remember that. And, and actually, Isaiah predicts the rise of Cyrus. He wasn't even born yet. He didn't even exist until a couple hundred years later. So he, he predicts the rise and he even gives the name of Cyrus, the person who would unite the Medes and the Persians to conquer Babylon in the year 539. The decree of Cyrus would allow the Jews to return home, which happened in 538, a deliverance prefigured the great salvation of sin through Jesus Christ. So all this is happening in the context of something greater than just historical events. So what are the themes in theology of Isaiah? Well, it's the book that unveils the full dimensions of God's judgments, but also God's salvation. 
God is the Holy One of Israel. Have you noticed how he uses that as his favorite way of talking about God? The Holy One of Israel, who must punish his rebellious people, but will afterwards redeem them. Israel is a nation blind and deaf. When you go reading through the book of of Isaiah, you find all of these things. A vineyard that will be trampled. A people void of justice. A people void of righteousness. The awful judgment that will be unleashed upon Israel and all the nations that defy God is called the day. The day of what? The day of the Lord. Although Israel has in some way a foretaste of that day, we know that all nations bear its full power. It is a day associated in the New Testament with Jesus' second coming, the day of the Lord. God's judgment is referred to as fire. He is the sovereign God, far above the nations and far above all rulers. Now, God will have compassion on his people. That's why I love the book of Isaiah, because it's not just judgment. It's about redemption. So God will have compassion on his people. He will rescue them both politically, spiritually. Their restoration is like a new exodus. As God redeems them from being slaves again. Israel's mighty creator will make streams spring up in the desert as he graciously leads them home. The theme in the book of Isaiah is like, just imagine a highway for the return of the exiles. As a prominent theme in the book of Isaiah. The Lord rises a banner to summon the nations to bring Israel home. So peace and safety mark the new messianic age. A king will descend from who? From David. Remember? He will descend from David. Will reign in righteousness. All the nations will stream to the holy mountain of Jerusalem. God's people will no longer be oppressed by wicked rulers. And Jerusalem will truly be the city of God. The Lord calls the Messianic king my servant. A turn also applied to the children of Israel, to the nation. It is through the suffering of the servant that salvation has its fullest sense of achievement. Cyrus was God's instrument to deliver Israel from Babylon. But Christ, this is the theme of, of the book of Isaiah, but Christ will be the deliverer of mankind from the prison of sin. He came to be a light to the Gentiles so that those nations that face judgment would find salvation. These Gentiles also are called in the book of Isaiah servants of the Lord. So in, in, in summary, the book of Isaiah talks about the Lord's kingdom on earth and its righteous ruler and its righteous subjects. It is the goal towards which the book of Isaiah steadily moves the restored earth and the restored people will then conform to the divine ideal. And all will result in the praise and glory of the Holy One of Israel for all that he has accomplished. Now let's go to chapter 30 because that's where we're studying. So open your Bible, so keep it there in, in chapter 30. <clears throat> Here what we find is basically a rebuke to those in Judah who looked to Egypt for deliverance. Now, there's this, there's this phrase that we use sometimes when, when things are going really bad, when, when something is falling apart, when something is just not going our way. We say things are going south. <laughs> Have you heard that phrase before? Things are going south? Well, we can imagine, you know, a map, and you're trying to find something, all of a sudden you go all the way south, and then there's 
the, the map ends and there's nothing there, right? Well, you know, ironically, this is the exact situation because Egypt was south of Judah, <laughs> exactly south of Judah. And here we find the children of Israel, the, the people in Judah, repeating the biblical warning to not return south, to not return south, to not go to Egypt. Because Egypt is the symbol of the old life of slavery from which God had redeemed them. It's also a symbol of where God has redeemed us from our sins. But you know, there are times when Christians do go south. <laughs> and we've seen that, and you've seen that. Those that have been Christians for a while can look back and you can see people that you know very well that now are not part of God's people. They have gone south. They have gone to Egypt, returning to their old lifestyle. This is what the Bible calls rebellion. Because to have known God, to have embraced him, to adhered for a time to his ways, and then in spite of all the experience, choose to return south to the old life is the very definition of rebellion. And you can only rebel against something that you're intimately acquainted with. So let's go through chapter 30 real quick. So verse 1 and 2, God exposes the sin of those that put their trust in Egypt. Verses 3 and 5, the folly of trusting in Egypt. It's nonsense. Then the burden against Judah for their trust in Egypt. Verse 6 and 7, their trust in Egypt will gain them nothing. Verse 8 through 11, the Lord documents Judah's rejection of his message. So God often documents what's going on so we can read it. And learn from it. So he documents Judah's rejection of his message. Verses 12 to 14. The judgment to come upon Judah for their trust in Egypt. And for the rejection of his message is, is further, uh, further explained. Verses 15 to 17. Judah brought low because of their self-reliance and rejection of God's message. Then we have the blessing of restoration. That, that's, that's why I say I love the book of Isaiah. Because he doesn't leave everything in the doom. You know, he, he brings the light back. So... Verse 18, we have a call to trust in God's timing. Verse 19, God promises to bless his people by responding to their cry. Verses 20 and 21, God promises to bless his people with guidance. Verse 22, God promises to bless his people with the desire for purity. Verses 23 to 26, God promises to bless and nurture them with abundance. Verse 27 and through 29, God promises his people that, he will have, that they will have gladness in the day of judgment. And it ends, verse 30 to 33, the glory of the judgment of the Lord. So now let's study our passage. Ready? Verse 15. For thus says the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance. In, in Hebrew it says in returning. In returning and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. I have a question for you. Did God offer Judah the promise of protection from the Assyrians? Yes. He had made a promise. I'm going to protect you. They're not going to be able to do anything against you. They didn't need to look to Egypt for help at all. They could have trusted God. Yes or no? They could have trusted God. They could have trusted the promise that God had made. Trusting God's promise means returning. It is there. In conspicuous disobedience that our lives 
must return to the Lord always, to his ways. Outright disobedience is never consistent with real trust in God's promise. So returning also has the idea of drawing close to the Lord. So as I was preparing the message this morning, you know, I was, I was uh, you know, I've been studying this for about a month now, a couple of weeks, maybe three, four weeks. And I was saying, well, what do I need to return from? What do I have to repent from? And you know, it's very interesting when you do a self-exam. What amazing things God can do. Because just because someone else is worse than you doesn't make you better. Just because someone has cancer doesn't mean that your cold is not bad. Because it could get complicated to a pneumonia and then kill you. So repentance is always a blessing. Returning is always a blessing. Trusting in God and his promise means rest. That's what the text says. Rest. When we trust God, we don't have to strive for ourselves. We don't have to turn all around trying to protect or guard ourselves. We have our best protector, the best guard, God. We can rest in him. And when we do, it shows that we really trust in God's promises. But you know, it's just so easy to trust in our bank account. <laughs> it's so easy to trust in the knowledge we have obtained over experience or, or because we've gone to school and we have a degree. Sometimes we trust in our biblical knowledge. Or maybe we trust more in other human beings than in God. That's why when other human beings let us down, then we go to God. So trusting God's promise means rest. We can rest in Him. Trusting God's promise means quietness. That's what the text says, quietness. You don't need to argue for your side when God is on your side. Be quiet before Him and before others. It shows that you really trust Him. Trusting God's promise means confidence. And you aren't given to despair or fear because you trust God's promise. You know, during this last year and a half, there has been so much fear. And not only from non-Christians or from people that don't know God's word. Yes, I've met a lot of professed Seventh-day Adventists and other Christians. And I'm sure that at one point in time, all of us have been there. Fear. Fear. But trusting God's promises means quietness. It means confidence. We don't have to despair or fear because we trust God's promise. You know he can and will come through. And you have a profound confidence in God because he loves you. All these things together mean a real trust in God's promise. And so the text says that when we really trust God, it says we shall be saved. It means that we will find strength. Doesn't matter what you're going through. If you trust God, you will find strength. There is no person walking this earth more powerful than a child of God, boldly and properly trusting the promise of the living God. I'll say it again. There is no person walking this earth more powerful than a child of God, boldly and properly trusting the promise of the living God.
Let's go to verse 18. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. I, I want to go back to the Hebrew because sometimes it helps. So in Hebrew, it doesn't say the Lord longs. Actually, I think the old King James is a little bit more uh, 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 to, the, to the original Hebrew. So it says, the Lord will wait. Someone has a verse that says the Lord will wait? Okay. The Lord will wait to be gracious to you. What? The Lord is going to wait to be gracious? I don't want him to wait. I want him to do stuff now. The Lord will wait to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. Old King James says, and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those that wait for him. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. You know, we, we often wonder why the Lord waits to do things in our life. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me a lot. It's like, God, come on. Do something. Isaiah tells us plainly that when the Lord decides to wait, it's because he wants to be gracious to you. So whenever the Lord waits or seems to delay, it is because he always has a loving purpose behind that wait. We can trust that even when we don't understand what's going on, God has his own timing. And therefore, he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. You know, when God has mercy on us, who does it exalt? It exalts him. Mercy does nothing to exalt the person that receives it. Mercy recognizes the guilt of the one who deserved the punishment, but mercy exalts the goodness of the person who gives it. It shows them to be loving, generous, and full of mercy. All that comes from God. For the Lord is a God of justice. So on the surface, mercy and justice seem to oppose each other, right? Like, like if you were to go to a judge, and you, 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 you've gotten yourself into a mess. So you go to a judge, you're guilty of some crime, you stand before the, the judge, and he has a choice to either show you mercy or show you justice. But God is so great that he can show you both at the same time. And that's exactly what happened on Mount Calvary. That's what happened at the cross where Jesus took the punishment we deserve and God's judgment, justice was satisfied. And at the same time, God shows mercy by extending the work of Jesus to us as our payment is paid in full by what Jesus did on the cross. So, so notice how God is the only person in the universe that can reconcile mercy and justice. That he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's what Paul says in Romans 3.26. And then, and then listen to this. Blessed are those who wait for him. So, so on one end we have God that sometimes is waiting to be gracious. He's waiting to do something in our life and we don't understand that most of the time. But then he also says that we have to learn to be patient. We have to learn to wait. Because God is so great, there is a built-in blessing for those that wait on him. Now, I say it doesn't mean that we have to wait like in the sense of just letting time pass. No, no, no. He's talking about being patient, waiting, trusting 
God's promise. Spurgeon wrote something very interesting. He said, certain of God's people are in trouble and distress, that they are eager for immediate rescue. They cannot wait for God's time, nor exercise submission to his will. He will surely deliver them in due season. But they cannot tarry till the hour cometh. Like children, they snatch at an unripe fruit. To everything there is a season, and a time for every purpose under the heaven. But their one reason is the present. They cannot, they will not wait. They must have the, their desire instantaneously fulfilled. It's like fast food. We want fast blessings. Or else, they are ready to take wrong means of attaining it. If in poverty, they're in haste to be rich. And so they do crazy stuff. And they shall not long be innocent. If under reproach, their heart ferments regret and revenge towards others. They should sooner rush under the guidance of Satan into some questionable policy than in childlike simplicity, trust in the Lord and do what's right. And, and Spurgeon ends this phrase by saying, it must not be with you, my brethren. You must learn a better way. Learn to wait. Wait on the Lord. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. Verse 19. And you shall weep no more. He will be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And you know, there's been a lot of tears. I, I was looking at the list here of our members that have, that have rested in the Lord. And you know, I, I learned something through this experience. Let me just open my heart to you. Is that okay? Because a lot of times we say we have lost a loved one. But if that loved one was in Christ, this is just to get you thinking. Instead of talking about our loss, shouldn't we talk about a gain? Because for me to live is Jesus. And to die is gain. So when you lose someone, you're really not losing. You're gaining. And that will make the journey of grief a little bit easier when you understand that. So I just want to praise the Lord because during this dark season of our church, God has brought a lot of light into our lives. Starting with Duke Lester, February 4th, 2020. I mean, I'm just so blessed to see Betty today. The Holy Spirit said, Betty, you got to go to church today. And she said, I'm going to church. She was greeting us at the door, man. What, what a blessing. Florencia Cruz, April 27th. Audrey Bartlett. So I'm pretty sure that Diana, she's not here, but she's always watching online if she's not here. So Diana, my heart goes out to you. Alfredo Pena. Audrey died uh, May 4th. Alfredo Pena, July 10th. Stanley Payne, even though he wasn't here, he was in a foreign country, in his wife's country. He passed November 20th. November 20th, 2020. And then we said goodbye to 2020, and we thought that was going to be the end. No. May 10th. Clement Martin. May 24. The month hadn't even passed. Eric Ewing. 
July 1, Sonia Miller. Esther, July 10th. July 25th, Wilma Jordan. But look what the Bible says. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When God's people wait on him and patiently trust his promise, God pours out his grace at the cry of their heart. Even if it feels God is distant, he hears and answers your prayers. And we have seen how God has been with all these folks that gained, that gained, how God has sustained them during this difficult time. And I just want to praise God because he allowed me to be there for them. Not only before the person died, at their death, at their funeral, three days after they had been buried, seven days after they were buried, one month after they were buried, one year after they were buried. God is good. And his promises is true because there will come a day where there will be no more tears. No more tears to shed. You will weep no more. Now, in verse 21, it says, Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. it let's read verse 20 so we can get the context. It says, Though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your eyes shall see your teacher. So when Judas was prosperous and comfortable, what usually happened? Would they go out closer to God? Or would they wander away from God? Yeah, they wouldn't listen to God. So now God has to give them the bread of what? What does the text say? The bread of adversity and the water of affliction. But they would not hear God. But the promise is that he will guide them again. That's why I love Isaiah. He's always on the positive tone. He's always optimistic. He says, God will guide them again. You know, folks, it's always better to be uncomfortable and in tune with the Lord than to be comfortable and be out of the step with God. Thine ear shall hear a word behind thee, which might be a reference to the backsliding that's in verse 11, I think. So it's talking about that situation. But of course, there's allusion here to different uh, experiences, like in, in the Jewish nation, when a teacher, the schoolmaster, he would be behind his students, his student would go up to present. And he would be in the back of the classroom, and if that student got lost in his presentation, he would say, and give them some tips, right? Has that ever happened to you at school? Like your teacher says, no, 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 it's that way. <laughs> right, teacher? Professor? <laughs> Sometimes we have to tell our students, no, it's not that way, it's this way. Some see here the figure of the shepherds. Sometimes we see the, the paintings of the shepherds in Bible time, and we also see them in front of the flock, but that was not the case. A lot of times, in order to help them to walk into a difficult place, they had to be behind the sheep so they could see if one of the lambs or one of the sheep were getting astray and then get them back. So this is another figure of, of speech here. It might be alluding to the shepherds. But then it also could be alluding to the travelers because the Hebrew word here was used often to talk about travelers that were going down a road and all of a sudden you come to this place where, uh-oh, now there's four roads. Now, which one should I take? What is the right road? But then there's someone coming down the road that's been traveling that road a lot of times and he knows which way it is and he says, hey, it's that way. 
that's the way you got to go. If you're going to such and such a place, that's the road to take. The voice behind. Some scholars have mentioned that it might be the voice of your conscience, but how trustworthy is that? <laughs> no, I think actually it intends that it's the Holy Spirit of God. And of course, it's a reference to the Holy Scriptures because only in the Holy Scriptures we can find truth. It's the only rule of faith and practice. This is the way walk in it. And you know what the Bible always does? It's going to direct us to Christ because He is the way. And who is the only way of life and salvation. And we can only walk by faith when we hear that voice. It's interesting how the Targum of the of the Jews paraphrases this text and says, this is the right way. This is the right way. So today as we have gone through Isaiah 30, I want you to make it personal. So repeat after me. For thus says the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest is my salvation. In quietness and trust is my strength. The Lord longs to be gracious to me. Therefore, he will rise up to show me compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed am I for waiting on him. For I will dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. I shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to me. At the sound of my cry. When he hears it, he will answer me. Whether I turn to the right or to the left. My ears will hear a voice behind me. Saying, this is the way, walk in it. Will you make this your experience? I want this to be my experience. Let us pray. Dear God, you have talked to our hearts. This is such a powerful passage where you invite us to repent. You, re you invite us to rest in your promise. You invite us, Lord, to just be quiet. Just be quiet. Just to trust. That's where our strength is. Lord, in this passage you have invited us to call upon your name knowing that you will hear that you will dry our tears you have invited us Lord to listen to that voice the voice of your Holy Spirit the voice of your holy scriptures telling us day by day this is the way this is the way walk in that direction Dear God, thank you because sometimes we have to learn to wait. We have to learn to be patient because sometimes you are also waiting for the precise moment to bless us. The precise circumstances to show up. God, thank you for your word this morning. We embrace it. In Jesus' name, amen.